Welcome to Clinical Corner. I'm your host, Leslie Kamenoff, and I've been a yoga educator since 1979. And most of that time, I've had the privilege of learning from working with individuals. In each episode of this podcast, I'll chat with other clinicians about the history, techniques, and stories related to the healing work they do with their clients. The premium version of this episode, in which my guest and I review and analyze a video recording of them working with a client in a private session, is available by subscription at breathingproject.com. Now, let's get to our episode. I'm joined today by my dear old friend, Ellen Kiley. I've known her for quite a while. You'll hear us discussing that right at the beginning. Uh, just one note, you'll also hear towards the beginning of this uh, interview that um, she's the third recording that I made, which is true, but uh, she happens to be the fourth episode of the podcast. Uh, and that's because I decided to take the uh, interview I did with Gary Kraftsow and group it uh, as a trilogy with my first two interviews with Libby Hinesley and Robin Rothenberg um, as uh, three people that were deeply, of course, influenced by my teacher, uh, TKV Desika Char. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Ellen Kiley about the topic of yoga for scoliosis. There's a lot to learn here, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, the recording is in progress, and I am here with my good old friend, Ellen Kylie, um, you know, I I had to check my records in preparation for this chat just to see exactly when and how we first met. And since it was through email, I was able to track it down. And so it was back right around this time of year in 2005. So it's been 17 years since we first uh, connected. And you reached out uh, to see if you could come in and observe some of what we were doing at the Breathing Project back mm -hmm. then. So um, do you, uh, do you recall uh, what was going on for you in your life professionally and educationally back in 05? Because I sort of remember your situation, but you were coming out of a pretty heavy yoga-based uh, sort of focus at that point, as I recall. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was, uh, well, my background, I don't know, I think it's sort of relevant to the question, but I had scoliosis and a spinal fusion. And I had been through the Jiva Mukti teacher training in 99, I guess, and mm -hmm. uh, 2000, 99 and 2000. And I had been teaching for, you know, a little while, pretty often, regularly. And, uh, and someone had written an article for Yoga International about practicing and teaching with steel rods in my spine for scoliosis. Mm -hmm. and at that point, it was the internet was brand new there wasn't really even internet remember there but there was email like we had email but i don't yeah, think i was there. running my yoga list through aol at that point yeah yeah so. it was the beginning of email and there was paper magazines and there was no you know yoga international was a thing that you got in the mail and uh, i yeah. got four thousand and something emails back from that one article over the course of the over the course of six months or a year i got over wow. four thousand emails from scoliosis people around the world that we're des just desperate to have some help or advice. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, fascinating. So I think originally I reread that email that you found and um, I was looking for kind of a place to do a workshop. I was feeling mm -hmm. it, but I also just wanted to meet you because I'd heard about you from, uh, you know, from the, the Shakespeare people. The, the Up in the Berkshires. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. 
yeah, it was it was really fun reading that old email too because it brought back uh, a lot of memories and 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 in, in a follow up email when we were going back and forth, you you did remind me about how I influenced you in going to Sitar uh, to the Symposium for Yoga Therapy and Research, which yeah. was planting a pretty serious seed, apparently considering you know where you're headed now with your life. Would you like me to discuss that? Uh, yes, we will get to that. We will get to that. But just to, to fill in our audience here, um, just the Cliff Notes version of your sort of history and what brought you to yoga, uh, considering, you know, the fact that you were diagnosed at, I think it was 15 uh, with scoliosis. And, and just to put this in context with the other uh, podcasts I've done so far, this is the third recording that I'm making. And um, uh, what, what's interesting for me as I was thinking about it is, is what you have in common uh, with my previous two guests and, and one interesting distinction. What do you have in common with, um, well, Libby Hinesley was my first interview and she's coming out with a book called Yoga for Bendy People, um, which deals with issues of uh, hypermobility. Um, and so she got involved in, in, in uh, yoga because of some issues she was having with her own body. She eventually ended up being trained as a physical therapist. And it was only after all of that that she was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos. Um, wow. Even after going through PT school, no one had figured it out, right? So her diagnosis came fairly late in the process of her exposure to yoga and becoming a physical therapist. And then Robin Rothenberg was the second conversation I had. And, and she wrote a book called Restoring Prana. And she runs a, a very respected yoga therapy training program. And uh, she'd been doing a lot of work with pranayama and breathing and, and very much in the sort of desikachar kind of lineage eventually, which is very breath-centered, as you know. But it was only, you know, fairly um, uh, far on through that process that she was diagnosed with, with asthma and started exploring sort of alternative things like Buteyko method and stuff like that, which sort of... Um, added a whole other dimension to working with the breath than she would have gotten just from the yoga background. So these are two people who sort of started with yoga, went into more therapeutic kinds of, uh, of focus, but then were actually diagnosed fully with their own problems, which sort of influenced this whole process they went through. Now, in, in your case, your diagnosis came very early in life, as often happens with scoliosis. It's spotted in those teenage years. Um, and so you knew this about yourself. You knew this about your body. You had, I think it was only a year after your diagnosis, you had your first surgery, as, as I recall. Um, and, and to me, that says something that it was probably progressing pretty rapidly if you're getting that level of intervention that soon after having it spotted. And so maybe you can pick up your story there and, and just let our listeners know what your life was like uh, past your teens, uh, having had the diagnosis and then the surgery. Okay, so um, just a quick little correction, not that, but I was diagnosed before that. I was diagnosed probably when I was like 12 or something. I oh, I see, okay, so I had my notes. But it, it is relevant because the standard care treatment then was uh, if it's below a certain degree and they measure the curvature of the spine, um, you know, with the protractor and lines and degrees, Yeah. Below a certain degree, they say, well, we'll just watch it and we'll right. see, um, you know, if it gets how if it gets worse and if it doesn't. 
And mine, yes. So then mine did get worse. And they put put me in a brace and gave me exercises to do in the brace. And it still got, I did all the exercises and I, it still got worse. And so I had this horrible surgery when I was 16, gruesome, terrible. It didn't work. In fact, it made me worse. It um, cre- I wasn't really in pain before the surgery. And but they sort of frightened me into feeling that I should have it or probably because, you know, probably all these ter- terrible things would happen to me if I didn't as I was older. Correct. So I did it and then I had a horrible pain after it. It was a disaster. So, yeah, I want to uh, talk about that because you're not the only one that had that outcome from that particular procedure, which was very common back then. Uh, and we're talking about this is what uh, the 70s, the 1980. I had that. 1980. Okay, yeah, right. So and uh, and and this is um, this is what they were calling Harrington rods back then, because mm-hmm. I I learned of it uh, as a flat back procedure, which I don't think they were calling it at that point. Were they? It was just. You're getting Harrington rods. I think it's one of those retrospective. Exactly. Where they realized they made a mistake. And so. Yeah. 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 Well, we're going to get back to that. So, so you're, you're having this in your, in your late teens, you, you actually have more pain after the surgical procedure. And so what was, did you, did you have any kind of, way of maintaining yourself uh uh doing exercises um, that's a brutal period that's yeah. just there was i i am as you know very much of a go-getter and i kind of believe like always very positive and mm-hmm. not lazy and i tried a lot of stuff i mm-hmm. mean i tried every there wasn't you know back then there wasn't pilates really but you know i did leg lifts and i i just couldn't really stand without pain anything Pretty much any exercise I did caused me more pain. So little, and the disc in there gradually deteriorated until it was just bone on bone between L5 and my sacrum. So it just gradually got worse and worse. And I kept having to let go of things. Like I I rollerbladed all over and that seemed to help. And it had me on my feet less hours. Like I could get where I had to go quicker with that. So it was less pain really. And there was something about the balance, about the about the lifting through the core uh-huh. that I helped relieve some of the pressure of the weight on that. Because uh, you know, I would hurt afterwards, but I would rollerbladed all. But what was like roller skates then? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, four wheels instead of the inline skates. Right. Oh, Just to back up a bit, because because um, I have a clear image in my mind because I've seen the imagery and I know about the procedure. But for our listeners. The, the the mistake they were making with this well there were a couple of mistakes one one as I recall is it removed the lumbar curve uh, it flattened the curve of the lumbar spine but also the rods that were doing that were not anchored to your sacrum right and so there the the disc you described the L5S1 disc would become hypermobilized because all the joints above it were immobilized and that was the only place you would get movement there. Plus the fact that your lumbar curve had been flattened meant that your center of gravity was pitched forward and you had to keep from falling on your face. You had to actually literally hike your spine in a posterior direction, right at that one joint that was mobile. And no wonder the disc wore out and it got arthritic and you were in pain. Yeah, that was a tough period. 
you know, when I was in college and it was very tough, um, but happy ending. I got it all. I had a revision surgery, which was also pretty brutal, but it was all taken out and redone. Mm. And honestly, that was 1995. And from that point on, I really haven't had back pain since. So (laughs) (laughs) I moved the problem to some other areas, but it's, you know, I stand up straight and I, you know, march proudly around the world. And that's when I started yoga. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it would. It, I, you're, I, I can't imagine you going through the intensity of something like a Jiva Mukti teacher training program with with the body, your body in the shape it was prior to the revision. Yeah, I mean, I really had a hard time, you yeah. know, just standing and walking. So. And by the way, for our listeners, uh, we will show some imagery of the revision surgery uh, in the premium section of this which is in the second hour um when the the uh, you can view the video and we'll be reviewing uh, some some work that uh that ellen and i did with um with a scoliosis uh guest at our clinic uh 11 years ago so that's in the second hour which is available to premium subscribers anyway that's that's my commercial um <laughs> so the mid mid 90s you get the revision um, and how did you discover yoga? Was Jiva Mukti your first exposure to yoga? Yeah. yeah, a friend of mine just was so passionate and you have to come, you have to come. And I mean, I was only like six months out of surgery, which, you know, for a surgery like that is not very long. And um, it was Second Avenue, you know, second floor, second I Avenue. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. And you know, it, and uh, the first time I went, I I couldn't do it much. I just, I told the David, I'll sit in the back and just mm-hmm. watch. And he's like, well, here's a mat, you know, I'll sit on the mat, and do what you want to do. And mm-hmm. I fuddled around and did some stuff and it felt pretty great. And then I went through the Shavasana mm-hmm. and the tears just started pouring out of my eyes. Okay. I was just like, Oh my God. It's just the idea that I didn't have to try to fix myself for five minutes. Mm. That I, I had never let go. I realized I'd been under so much stress for so long, just trying to get better, sure. trying everything. And, um, right. and the state I, your nervous system gets stuck in when, you know, you're, you're always struggling with your body and gravity and all of that. It must've been just absolutely life-changing. It really was really absolutely life-changing, yes. Yeah, wow. And it's not just the physical part either. It's just, you know, for adolescents going through scoliosis, you know, I had a brace in high school. I had a body cast for a year after, Mm. you know, in high school also. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of, that's when you're the most self-conscious of your body image and, I don't, I didn't entertain that at the time. I wouldn't have admitted to it because I'm sort of the mighty and powerful Ellen. But (laughs) looking back, you know, I have that warrior, you know, sort of thing that doesn't, I don't like, I look back on things and realize how hard they were, but I never really Mm -hmm. admitted at the time, although I'm better now. But um, that whole psychology, just that feeling of separation and alienation from the rest of your peers and nobody really understanding, you know, you're at a party and you're staying there and you're in excruciating pain and nobody else is and conversation, mm. you know, it, it's alienating. So I had a lot of, uh, you know, work to, you know, just regrouping to do of my brain. Right. And it was really about just helping yourself be a different way 
in the world and in your body and in your nervous system. Um, and those are all the positive, wonderful, amazing things that kinds of things that get uh, us hooked on, on yoga. Uh, and uh, now looking back, um, and I'm just going to quote you here from one of, from one of the paragraphs that we've exchanged uh, is uh, the the dangers of yoga for scoliosis abound as well. Um, and can you say a little bit about what you learned in that direction o- over the years? Oh, okay, definitely. So I guess it's important to distinguish when we talk about scoliosis between people with rods and fusions and mm. people who just have scoliosis without rods and fusions, because as a therapist, you would treat them very differently. But um, so I'll just address the the issue that I was referring in that email is that yeah. the, having these long steel rods in my spine, which to be clear now I'm fused from my sacrum all the way to like T7 or T8, but I have um, also it's self fused above that. So virtually I'm fused from, you know, the the top of my shoulder blades down to my sacrum. Um, So for me going through Jiva Mukti yoga, which is very um, kind of a Shtanga based sort of very not, there's not a lot of, well, you know, maybe don't go to your limit or, yeah. you know, back off from the edges. You know, it's always sort of go it's kind to of the edge. opposite of that. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of this. <laughs> let's see if we can stand on you and get you in there a little deeper. And so the on the one hand, it, there was a lot of release for me in that practice because it was so deep. I was able to release. I mean, I had so much scar tissue in my back. Mm that it was unbelievable. And I had also enormous emotional releases from, Mm. you know, doing that, but I did overstretch my hips and Mm. overstretching muscles and tendons creates a tendency for weakness. It becomes more difficult over time to strengthen those areas. Mm. And I don't, you know, having weak hips and glutes is just really not, I don't think a great thing for anybody. And and by the way, what you're describing is is almost exactly the kind of problem that people without rods would have if they practice certain, following certain alignment imperatives that are not that functional for them, like always holding your spine in axial extension and working in these sort of extreme poses with wide stances where you're getting all of the movement into the position from your pelvis, right? Mm -hmm. And because when you're immobilizing uh, your your spinal joints, uh, you're over-mobilizing the the hip joints. And and so yours is, of course, an extreme example where you, you literally have a fused spine, but it would be easy for someone who didn't know that about you to see you practicing and go, oh, what a beautiful practice. Look how aligned her spine is, mm-hmm. you know? Like we've talked about this, like when, when you when you go up and fold forward in a forward bend, you know, it looks like, oh, look at that. Her spine is so long and she's getting such a nice fold forward at her hip joints. And that's literally how that movement is cued for people without rods. Yeah. Yeah. So really I have a very 
very, I, I overstretched my hips and also my neck. You know, I overdid a lot of those shoulder stands and mm. was pulled, you know, pulled up into extreme versions of it. I mean, I don't know that really anybody really teaches that way anymore. It was a long time it, it's, ago. It's, People are more yeah. Medically aware now. I'm more sophisticated for sure. Well, so many of the people that were teaching that way have themselves become injured and had their hips replaced. We all got older and learned learned from our fights, but that's good news that, you know, yoga's uh, really evolved in the time that we've been practicing and teaching. So it it sure has. And, And approaches of scoliosis have evolved. And that's another thing that you were mentioning in our correspondence just, just now. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, viewpoint uh, in the physical therapy profession, for example, has evolved quite a bit. Um, and the perspective of maybe wait and see and watch has been replaced by, well, let's let's do some early intervention and see if you know we can keep this from progressing or avoid some of the more extreme treatments. Uh, and oh, before I forget, I, I want to share with you, and I think I may have mentioned this too in the past, a, a really important distinction that you helped me make. Um, And it was in one of your early visits, maybe even the first one, because you presented a few times to my group of students at the Breathing Project over the years about this material. Um, I no longer say, and this is due to you, oh, I have a little bit of scoliosis. Um, Because, you know, I've had x-rays in my spine from way back, and I have an asymmetry and a rotation and then this and that. And you know, uh, and I used to describe that as I have a little bit of scoliosis. And you heard me say that in front of the group and you jumped on me. <laughs> and rightly well, so, right? Well, I think that, um, you know, I've seen I've seen that word get tossed around and abused a lot by, you know, various groups, professional groups. And uh, we don't have to diss anybody, but, um, <laughs> you know. I don't want to, I don't want to mislead it. There's a very big difference between, and yes, the cutoff, whether the cut there's a cutoff so it's 22 degrees at one point it was 21 degrees at one point it was you know so where the cutoff is, is i've heard 25 uh, yeah well yeah. there the re, there is this is statistics you know they 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 when you they do the cutoff one way and you get more you know lower you get more people in it yeah. and you cut the other way and you get fewer people in it but um so they're trying to kind of balance out like uh, at what point are you getting the, the ba- greatest benefit? Well, you get you know, the actual clinical diagnosis. Yeah. And at what point are you just scaring people and right. taking their money for things they don't need or, you know, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they, this is, and it also makes it just really hard to study from a scientific point of view. If you have 10 different doctors diagnosing it 10 different ways. So they now have a standard internationally agreed upon definition Uh and cutoff so that you can take studies on different parts of the globe and compare them and do a meta analysis or something, you know. Right. And, And you're becoming an expert in this because you are currently pursuing a master's in public health in epidemiology uh, which is the science, of course, that that studies this exact thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's amazing uh, to be able to bring that kind of uh, training and perspective back to a field like ours, uh, because 
to go back to the sitar thing, when you first saw people presenting research about yoga and the benefits of yoga, that's amazing and wonderful. And for someone who's trained in epidemiology, if you actually dig in and read a lot of those research studies, most of them aren't very good um, because there's really small sample sizes, there's very poor design, and they're, they're very easy to pick apart by someone with any kind of knowledge of how to read a study, right? Yes. And, yes. and, and so hopefully you can bring the kind of expertise that you're gaining now in this master's back to people who, who really want to do a good job of studying this kind of thing and, and produce um, respectable research, which would be awesome. Yeah, I hope to be able to uh, legitimize the, the study of yoga a, a bit in some way, a bit, and um, just let be part of that, that team of people that does that. There's already some good stuff. Um, you know, it's also, I, I resent, it's like, I've got that rebel in me that I, we have that in common a little bit, but like, I really find that, you know, I majored in, as an undergrad in history of science. And I've always, it's always bothered me just how biased inherently they call it evidence-based medicine and it's all the science and now it's all the rage, you know, but it's very much in fashion right now, but the whole system is biased towards, industries that financially can afford the studies because what makes a study what makes a study you know considered legitimate that sample size you got to like get people to show up research you know you got to pay people yeah you got to get them to show up long term if it's just a six-week study well who's how are you going to say what it does for scoliosis because you know they might feel better after six weeks but after six months they're back where they were so you got to pay people, a bunch of people over a long period of time. And that's, you know, the pharmaceutical industry can afford that. And well, that's, you know, that's the built-in problem. Yeah. De surgery device industry can afford that. So. Um, yeah. And, and if you, and if you change the definition of something like scoliosis by just one degree less. Yeah. That, that translates into potentially billions of more dollars of profit for the people funding the studies. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I just, you know, it's your fault. I went to that CITAR conference and I saw those people up there and I thought someday I'm going to do this. And it took a while, it took 20 years, but here I am. Well, yeah, but I'm thinking of what a, what a um, uh, deflection of your life path this whole exposure to the therapeutic side of yoga was and going to sitar, coming to the breathing project. And, you know, and, and, and then of course, what we haven't mentioned is uh, the, the training that you got in uh, body work and anatomy trains. You did the whole Tom Myers uh, course of study uh, at one point. And I think, didn't you meet Tom at the breathing project when we brought him no. in? No, was that? Well, I, I saw him here, but I didn't meet him here. Yeah. Okay. I had him in Maine because I had a house in Maine. But. Oh, of course, you were in Maine at that point. Yes. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's... It, it, to other people, it looks like I keep switching careers, but to me, it's all one. It's all one path, and it's all the same. Uh, just a different angle of looking at things. Right. Even the beekeeping is part of it. Well, no, but <laughs> I mean, you could call that healthy, I guess. <laughs> Public health. It was a farmer, but um, no, that was just I married it, you know. 
<laughs> you married into the beekeeper. I married it. I married a commercial beekeeper. Yeah, no, I, I had forgotten there for a moment that you were actually a neighbor of Tom's in Maine way back. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. So well, and um, I wanted to learn more anatomy, actually. As a yoga teacher, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I wanted desperately to understand. I was having all these scoliosis clients or patients and doing these workshops. Hmm. And I was way over my head. I mean, way over my head. Some of these people are very, very unwell. And I wasn't trained in how to touch them. I didn't want to give anybody a yoga assist with that kind of, right. you know. And um, I didn't know what I was, what was under my hands, you know. And so there was no Leslie Kamenoff yoga anatomy course then. <laughs> and so to learn anatomy, that was the only place I could go, really, because it was nearby. Yeah, we hadn't even come out with the book. Uh, well, we came out with the book in 07. So it was a couple of years after I met you that we actually, I was in the middle of writing the book, I believe, when we when we first met, uh, yeah. which was a whole other uh, challenge, figuring out how to analyze something like asana from an anatomical perspective. Thank goodness for Amy with all the, with all the letters after her name, uh, which I don't have. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so you're currently uh, in the midst of this master's in public health. Um, so where are you uh, in terms of your course of study? Uh, I have just two more classes to go. I have uh, advanced biostatistics two and advanced FE two. And I have, uh, it's called One Thing Left, which is like a culminating project, which you do as a group where you do an actual study. Mm. And um, I had an internship, which I finished, and I did an actual study. So I'm getting to the point now where I can really analyze data. You know, like we had to learn how to do it on a you know, computer program that runs different statistical tests. And, you know, you can link it to a spreadsheet, you know, a large spreadsheet, you know, with mm. a lot of data. So it's, it's kind of cool. And, um, yeah, who knew I would be able to do it? I, I went into it not really knowing if yeah. I was going to be any good at it. You mean exercising that sort of analytical yeah. math side of your brain? A lot of math, seriously. Yeah. And yeah. computer programming. And I'm 58 years old. You know, I was like, you know, it was. Uh, Are you the it, oldest one in your in your in your uh, oh, class? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm older than my teachers for sure, <laughs> but. You know, not in, in not in spirit, I guess. But now the, I got this great advice from an, actually a nurse. I was working in a doctor's office at the time, and I was saying to this nurse, like, I really want to go back to school. She was like, do it, do it. And I'm like, yeah, but I'll be like 60 by the time I get out. And that's just so ridiculous. And she's like, well, you're going to be 60 anyway. You might as well. <laughs> right. I was like, yeah, she's right. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm so glad I did. It's been so Gosh, it's like really, it's yeah. really helpful to like. So this isn't even like a second or even a third act for you. How many acts have there been uh, at this point? Well, I don't know. I don't, I get a little defensive about like they're different. Acts. Like I said, to me, I've, I've, I'm, I feel very single pointed. It doesn't feel like a different path. Yeah. All the same. It's all the same act. It's well, just. Well, it's different skills, but. It's all coming from the a place of inquiry and curiosity about health and how to make how to help people serve people to be their best. You know, starting with an inquiry into my own self. How can I be my best? 
And then taking it to how can I help others be their best? And what do I need to learn to take that to the next level? Mm. And um, I was also planning a few, you know, I thought I I like the idea that I could do it remotely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I can plan. It's sort of a, my body, you know, isn't so like standing up and doing body work all days was getting harder. And I thought, well, maybe I should come up with a, a long-term realistic plan for making a living. So this master's has been entirely remote or have you actually been to No, no, no but I meant class. like the work itself of Epi data analysis and, I you see. know, most of the actual jobs I can do somewhat remotely, if not totally remote. Because the medical school is in Valhalla, right? Uh, yeah, New York Medical College. Yeah, well, I only know Valhalla from the train when I would always go up to the Berkshires. You know, when I'm passing by the cemetery, I know I'm in Valhalla. (laughs) It's got that huge cemetery right by the. Uh, the Yeah, it was nice to go remote, actually. So so was when you made the, the transition in perspective from the yoga just for your own self and your own healing to thinking, wow, I can take this focus and this this interest and skills that i have to helping people was that was the article you wrote for yoga international kind of a turning point when you got such a huge response from it was was that sort of a, a well that was a turning point that's when i knew that i uh i wanted to learn more about how to help those people i knew that i wasn't really super qualified to be able to Mm-hmm. Uh, I was scared, you know, but I, I, I jumped right in actually. I didn't know. And that was a turning point, that mm-hmm. article. And then um, the Tom Myers thing was another turning point, finding mm-hmm. him and, mm-hmm. you know, using, using my hands and having no intention of becoming a massage therapist, purely doing it to, to learn more about anatomy Right. And then just getting all this feedback that my I was good with my hands and right. and just and to be I, clear, Tom Tom doesn't train people to be massage therapists per se. He has a method. No, you had to already have a massage degree, a license to go there. But I talked him into letting me in and promised I wouldn't work on people. But then I just yeah just yeah you you kind of um, got a an exemption as I recall. Yeah, to- I got an exemption, and then I uh, and then I went back. You know, I actually got offered a full-time job with benefits if I would do the license get and do both. And, and that was the sell. I was like, oh, okay, I could use health insurance. And, you know, so I, I got the license, and hmm. the passage license, and then got the full-time, took the full-time job. Hmm. We're doing, I got to teach yoga all morning and water aerobics and uh, work in the tr- 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 training studio, you know, the gym. And then I to do massage all afternoon. <laughs> I did that for 15 years. That doesn't sound like a bad deal. Now that was when you were down South, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you lived for a while in uh, Georgia. Yeah. South Georgia. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So it's a big journey. Yeah, it's a big journey. yeah. Wow. So um, the, just to go about, you mentioned a few things that now, by the way, you know, I, I think I mentioned this to you in the correspondence, whatever we're doing here is in my mind, when I conceived the, the podcast is whatever the exact opposite of dumbing it down is, is what I want to do. So to get into the nitty gritty and some of the, just the technical language around some of the things we've mentioned, 
um, when you talk about degree of scoliosis, okay, that's something that's determined by various methods. Um, the one I'm familiar with is done from an x-ray study where you mark up the, the x-ray in a particular way. You find the two vertebrae that are most out of parallel and determine the angle between them. If there were zero scoliosis, that number would be zero because mm -hmm. the vertebral bodies would be perfectly parallel. But then you mm -hmm. find the two that are most out of alignment and whatever that angle is known as the Cobb angle, that's the number you're given uh, mm -hmm. about what your degree of scoliosis is. And the, the variance between 20, 21 or 25, I've heard it vary by at least five degrees from various people of what constitutes the, the actual diagnosis of scoliosis uh, is that number, the, the Cobb angle number, which is based on a static image of a moment in time of someone's spine. But then there's the additional consideration of how quickly is that changing for any given individual, right? And that's yeah. the, the progression of the scoliosis because some people can be measured at, you know, 18, 19, 20 or so degrees, but be kind of stable there and function quite well and not be in pain. And it's not necessarily actionable in terms of some of the more extreme treatments, right? Yes, and there's actually one more criterion that goes into the diagnosis, which is um, the whether or not the bones are still growing, like where, where they are in the bone growth. If it, it, and that's a harder thing to measure. It's a mm. more expensive thing to measure and it's not often always done, but they go by age when they don't have the device and it's, um, you know, so they basically wait till if you're still growing and mm. you're at 20 degrees, they're nervous. Right. So in other words, that cutoff, the way they decide that cutoff is based on a statistics of your like the likelihood to progress. So they take a large, large number of people mm. and they see how many of them progress, you know, to, to very to severe scoliosis at the various age diagnoses and, and curvature diagnoses. And so at, at 22 degrees, you're, and at the time where your bones stop growing, you're not very likely to, you could just stay there. It's, mm. you, you may be fine. Probably you're statistically probably to be fine or whatever, however they decide it. But after, after 23 degrees, it's highly likely that you will continue to progress at a rate of one degree a year, which mm. means that by the time you're, you know, 45, you you're in a wheelchair. Yeah. Well, you know, you would, you would have a problem and the older people get, the harder it is for them to correct it either surgically or through exercise embracing any, it's the harder it is to correct any at all. Right. Well, but there's, there's an inherent problem. Well, it's not a problem. It's just a built-in issue with making clinical decisions based on epidemiological uh, data is that it, it's, it is predictive for large groups of people, but not for any one specific person, because mm -hmm. you could be the exception to the rule, so to speak. And, you, you know, you can never know, for example... Uh, like I talk to people that have gone through bracing, you know, um, and I have one friend who swears that the bracing actually helped her um, avoid more serious interventions when she was young. Um, 
and that it was absolutely the right thing to do. And then in your case, of course, they tried the bracing and it, and it didn't work. Uh, but there's there's no way to tell what that individual's life would have looked like had they done or not done a particular therapy because it's a single case, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's this is a very hard thing to study. I mean, it's, that's why they use statistics because you can't know what would have happened to her if she hadn't had the brace. There's just exactly. this way to know. She may have ended up exactly as she is now without going through all the torture of being in a brace because the, the scoliosis may have stopped progressing all on its own. And, you know, it, that's that's the that's the, the tricky thing. Right. So it's like the the, the races. You got to you got to take a whole bunch of numbers and whittle it down to the odds. What are your odds of yeah. having progression beyond yeah. a certain degree? And it's yeah, and every so often an 80 to one odd comes in, like in the Kentucky Derby. The other day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Then they have an easier decision to make. Yeah, a hard decision for people. So if you are a yoga therapist and you ever had a person um, who was in that situation who had been diagnosed in a kind of a gray area, that twenty to twenty-five degree area, um, I got goosebumps just even thinking about that because that is that is a fraught, fraught, difficult decision. And I think that as a yoga therapist, this is you know. What you one of the things you don't get with a physical therapist mm. is you don't get the kind of integrated approach to a yoga teacher can be very aware and sensitive to the psychological part aspect of that decision, which sure. is you know it's very difficult it, for it, parents. I mean, the parent, the mothers are beside themselves. Sure, and yeah. you know a surprising number of people that I run into who who have been diagnosed with scoliosis do not know their Cobb number. They've never been told. Uh, and it's, 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 I mean, I'm so accustomed to having these discussions with you. You're probably one of the better informed people. I would say, I would venture to guess on this topic in terms of your own personal situation and the field in general. Uh, and I just would expect someone that had that diagnosis to, have as much information as they possibly could about it. And that is absolutely not the case. People don't even know what a Cobb angle is many times. Well, you know, they may, uh, let me just say this, and it's, it's, it's um, speaks to the psychological aspect of this disease, which is significant. Um, they may have been told and it may have been explained to them, but there, there may have been so much anxiety in that person when they were at the doctor and they were getting so much information thrown at them so fast that it's actually just too much for people to take in. They've just been told that they might have to have surgery. I mean, they're not, you know, those doctors are not famous for taking their time and giving you a moment to digest what you've just heard. So they might remember one or two of the things that chances are they're going to remember like, well, you might need a brace or surgery. And then that from that point, you know, hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good, that's a good point, but um, still, you know, when because when someone tells me, okay, I, I was diagnosed when I was fourteen or fifteen or, or whatever, and I'll typically ask, you know, do you remember them telling you if you had a number at that point or a degree of scoliosis or how severe it was and all of that? And more often than not, they they don't have that information. Uh, available. And then we just look, you know, and you can, you can kind of see. Uh, so let's talk for a minute about um, just because 
your, your typical yoga teacher, yoga therapist, uh, probably has a fairly good eye for spotting the more obvious asymmetries that show up in, in someone's body when they're doing some of the, the things we ask people to do in, in class, right? So let's talk for a minute about just what, what is obvious to, let's say, a fairly trained eye in terms of uh, spotting someone with, with scoliosis and, and what would be useful to say or to not say in a certain situation, uh, let's say, for example, in a group class, we'll talk about one-on-one -on -one stuff in a, in a little while, but um, what about that situation, that scenario? I'm just sorry. I don't know. Uh, there you go. Okay. Well, you would see, what should you say? Yeah, that's, it's tricky. So you'll see somebody with um, shoulders of uneven height, Mm -hmm. You'll see the waist. Is this what you want? Like a typical yeah, yeah, description yeah. Mm -hmm. of what the person looks like, or yeah. Yeah, you yeah. want to know more like how you handle it when you see these obvious signs? Yeah. Well, let, let's just say you know we've okay. we've made we've made the observation. There's clearly uh, a, a marked asymmetry showing up in someone's body, um, and so what? As someone who has both been a person with scoliosis but you know rods which is as you said a different situation and mm -hmm. been teaching uh so from both sides of the equation as as the student and as the teacher what have you learned over the years are uh, either the useful things to say or the things to avoid saying in that in that situation uh, well, I wouldn't say anything in a class situation mm -hmm. you know obviously want to point out someone's like if it looks extreme, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking someone to, well, you know, can you, can you draw your right shoulder down or, mm -hmm. you know, can you, uh, can you level your hips? Because self-correction is, you know, is, is really the goal for all of us, including mm -hmm. people with scoliosis, but, you know, improving alignment, but I certainly wouldn't make them feel uncomfortable or, you know, self-conscious or anxious, or just try to, you know, be chill about it, basically common sense, you know, and then um, just, I would probably make a little extra attention to just let them know that, you know, make sure that if there's something that we can do to modify, I would keep an extra eye on them. Mm -hmm. I would look, you know, I would make sure they're not over, you know, that they're just not overly enthusiastic at first and taking their time to learn the practice, I guess, and see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Well, sorry to put you on the spot there, but I had a particular reason to ask that question. And it goes back to um, what was behind the comment I made about, oh, I have a little bit of scoliosis. Everybody has a little bit of scoliosis, which I don't say anymore. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, you wouldn't want to say that. No, 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 I don't. And okay. what, I, what I'm really getting at is human bodies are asymmetrical, inherently so. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, everyone's got some kind of, uh, lateral rotational, uh, sacral asymmetry going on in their bodies. If, if for no other reason, then, you know, our organs are not placed symmetrically. Our diaphragm's not symmetrical. We're not ambidextrous. Uh, we have, you know, just two sides to us. And mm -hmm. as part of an inquiry based process, when when I'm I'm teaching, 
one of the things that I'm trying to help everybody get in touch with is what am I noticing along those lines, right? And without it turning into a clinical situation of, oh, my eye is telling me that this person's asymmetry is beyond 20 something degrees, which obviously I'm not communicating to them or anyone else in a group situation. It's like, what can we notice about our asymmetries in such a way that we can understand what amplifies the asymmetries we have and what neutralizes them. Mm. You know, see, because for me, that's an important conversation for everybody. It's mm-hmm. it's it's that much more critical for someone with a, you know a clinical diagnosis of scoliosis. But for for everybody, knowing where to find comfort and ease, which is a, a, an arrangement of your body that sort of neutralizes your asymmetries. And, and lets you come to a restful place, but then finding the opposite and knowing what that is so that you can challenge your asymmetries and work the muscles that are weak, that get underworked or release the muscles that get condensed short, you know, um, stretch the muscles that, that are chronically shortened or work the muscles that are chronically weakened. You know, that sort of thing needs to be done as well as part of just maintaining um, a pain-free body, a pain-free asymmetrical body. So um, that's kind of the direction that 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 question was 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 headed. Um, and even without knowing these numbers or having a, a, a clinical diagnosis by by an expert, um, if you wanted to give sort of an experiential definition of scoliosis, it might be something like when the asymmetries in your spine are are significant enough to cause suffering or pain on a chronic basis. Um, and, and, and that's when, you know, some more serious action or attention may be needed, you know, and for some people that would be well below 20. There's some people that are that maybe are past 22, 23, whatever, who don't have symptoms at all and mm-hmm. aren't in pain. You know, it's very individual. I've noticed. Yeah. You raise an interesting point. I never actually really thought about defining it that experientially. Um, I could see why I've often thought if I were going to do it over again, given that I had no pain when I had that horrible surgery, (laughs) would I do it again? And the answer is definitely not. If like someone asked me, like if pain were a criteria for, I was 16. I didn't know what to do, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Why would you want to have that surgery if you're not in pain? Sure. Well, that goes back to what we said about epidemiology and studies and who's paying for them and, and who's going to profit from the way things are defined, you know? So, (laughs) yeah. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting thing to think of when, when designing a study is, is, because when you develop, say, an inventory, like a self-inventory that people are filling out and, you know, when when they're becoming part of a study, that, that kind of has to be part of it. Like, what is your experience in your body? Well, that's actually much more common now. Like, they now medicine has improved greatly since I was, you know, they have, it's called HRQOL, health-related quality of life. And that is a factor now in all these mm. decisions, but it wasn't just, that was a long time ago, 1980. Right. 
Right. So, right. So, yeah, b- before we go into the second part where we actually go and, and, and look at some of this video, the premium part of the podcast, um, in your because your your life and experience does cover a whole era in this field, mm-hmm. if you think about it. Yes. Um, so just looking back now from where you're sitting on the verge of getting your master's in studying this phenomenon, all the way back to when you were first diagnosed, how would you uh, describe the major advances in uh, perspective, diagnosis, treatment uh, of uh, scoliosis since, you know, in that time frame that, that your life encompasses? Oh, it's very positive. I mean, this is one reason I was excited to go back to school is that I have access to a whole medical library now. And I'm sorry, but I don't know how to turn off these things now that that's okay. That's just life happening. It's already rolling. I mean, I'm used to life happening during Zoom. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's all right. (laughs) But um, yeah, so when I, I have access now to an entire medical library and just, I mean, just the number of journals that are available to the, the amount of research being done now is just, you know, there's 46 pediatric asthma journals, you know, to choose from. There's just, it's, it's enormous amount of uh, data out there. And it's all in one, you know, you can access it all from one, you know, med school library. And uh, it's from all over the world. And there are now, for scoliosis, there are now internationally, I mentioned this, internationally agreed upon mm-hmm. you know, methods and diagnosis and definitions. So I can, you know, maybe, you know, there's four, there's a, a study size of 14 in this study, and there's a study size of 25 in this study, and there's a, stu- you know, and they're, they're small studies, but when you get together and you do an overall analysis, they didn't used to be comparable before. But now you can frequently um, look at them all in a lump and say, well, we've now we've got all these that are because they're being done in the same way, right. we can draw a more significant conclusion. Well, you're comparing it. apples to apples, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. You always have a better way of saying it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it make, without without an agreed upon international standard. Um, then all you've got is a bunch of things that aren't using the same standard for their protocols and small sample sizes. And then you can't draw conclusions epidemiologically by treating them as a large group that has a a single definition. Yeah. Well, I'll keep on this topic because this is a fascinating topic to me. The things that are better now and different is Uh that's one. Um, and the, uh, the international cooperation is also very helpful for us here in America because the Europeans were very early on, um, very much focused on non-surgical treatments. So they have been, they are leading the way all across Europe. There's Spain, France, Germany, Italy, they have research hospitals devoted to scoliosis Mm. exercise therapy, you know? So it's really, um, so because information is now so much circulated and shared, we are able to benefit. And so now the international guidelines, so the the scoliosis research society, which is the American, it's it's a surgical association, but they Mm. are also the ones that are sort of in charge of, 
deciding what are the treatment protocols. Like if a kid comes to you, do you, do you what, you know, how do you decide what you should recommend? Mm-hmm. And the, the standard protocol now is for something called scoliosis specific exercise mm. um, to occur before bracing, during bracing. And, you know, they really make, they're supposed to, how many people, how many physical therapists are trained in scoliosis specific exercises? I'm unsure of that number, but, <laughs> but they could certainly access scoliosis specific exercises easily enough on YouTube. Wait, and, uh, exercise, I, I, I'm, I'm hearing something different here from what I understood about bracing, which is that you keep it on for as long as you can and you hardly ever take it off. I'm assuming that if you're doing exercising during bracing, you're taking the brace off to do the you exercise. You can do both ways. You can uh-huh. have exercises you do with the brace on and you can have exercises that you do with the, with the brace off. But yeah, no, they'll, they'll let you take it off to, to do exercises. Okay, well, that's and they typically involve much of the stuff. It's like when I started PT, they just hurt me, you know, it didn't help me, it made me, you know, worse, really. You hurt hmm. and didn't help. And they were just the same exercises you get for a bad back, you know, it was like leg lifts and right. bridges. And okay, but it didn't, didn't stop my scoliosis from progressing in the brace. Like I did those exercises in the brace. Oh, okay. Now they, they first of all they open up and mobilize the rib cage which can be really badly compressed Mm -hmm. and and so this is part of scoliosis specific exercises they have a common definition which includes mobilization and it's mobilization of ribs vertebra Mm. it's because you know people depending how long they've had this condition things can be very stuck that way and exercises will just reinforce it and make it Mm. stronger Whereas mm-hmm. you really need to kind of create some mobility, loosen up the pattern, right? You know, create some traction, mm. and then maintain the, the strength to stabilize. They call them stabilization exercises. So, and there's different ways to do traction, and there's different ways to do stabilization, and there's different ways to do mobilization. But the fact that there are agreed upon principles and shared techniques. It's really good, you know, and it's uh, started with the Stroth method, and there's like the Lyon method in France, and there's all these different ones. And um, they're studying now. Now, your point about patients being more involved in the decision, and, and that um, when you were saying about the problem with studying making decisions statistically, is you're not really taking into account the individual. Well, also just the individual preferences and motivation of a patient. So one person's going to be like, I don't want to do exercises. Just give me the surgery. Yeah. I'm not going to like, forget that I'm busy. And yeah. the other patient is going to be like, I would rather do anything than have surgery. And therefore I will exercise however many hours a day you tell me to exercise. So now we have more tailored options mm. to the person's, to the person's personality and motivation. And so that's a huge improvement. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's common sense, but sometimes introducing common sense into a conversation is a huge improvement over what we talked about before. <laughs> well, I think individual doctors, you know, you have a doctor that has common sense and they'll they'll include that in their recommendations. But as far as the whole 
the field, the field. Overall, yeah. global, global. This is what the scoliosis society recommends for physicians. Mm-hmm. You know, then you get a certain. They have to print it out or something. Cool. Well, before we make the transition to the second half here, one final question to to wrap up this section of the conversation, which is the big question for me. uh, In the last few decades, are the researchers any closer to understanding the actual cause of idiopathic scoliosis? Um, I would say yes and no. So (laughs) they have um, much more detailed information about it's, 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 it's agreed upon that it's a multimodal causality, meaning Uh that there are many different, there are statistical significance shown for many different potential causes, causal factors. Hmm. So there's, you know, there's a hormonal component. There's the hormonal people. There's the biomechanical people who are like, no, it's all about does, is the vertebrae, are they born with a genetic code for a wedged vertebrae development? And it's the wedged, you know, it's the vertebrae shaped like wedges that cause the whole thing. And there, there is evidence of this. So, I mean, there are people that are just develop wedge-shaped vertebrae. So I think that there's probably a variety of different types of scoliosis and you could get it from, and there's there's biochemical explanations, there's mechanical explanations, there's there's neurological explanations and they all have some some merit. So Hmm. there's just, it's, uh, I think it's pretty interesting stuff. It's also really hard to understand. When you truly get in and try to read it, it's sort of like, yeah, I mean, you know, you're getting into genes and you're getting into, you know, neurochemistry, which, you know, I got the big picture is that there's a lot of different factors involved and they all. And it's, and it's still overwhelmingly a uh, female uh, diagnosis. Mm -hmm. What percentage? 80% roughly. That's massive. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, um, so now, uh, for those of you uh, who've been listening that uh, want to have access to the next part of the conversation in which we'll be presenting some uh, visual uh, information in the form of a a video that we made 11 years ago at The Breathing Project, um, you can find how to uh, access that through a, a very reasonably priced monthly subscription at breathingproject.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I always learn something when I talk to Ellen, especially now that she's uh, getting more deeply involved in the research side of her topic. So don't forget once again to uh, check out the rest of our interview in which we analyze the uh, video we made back in the day at the Breathing Project Clinic. Uh, The full video of our chat plus the analysis of the teaching video is all available at breathingproject.com. You can check it out with no obligation. Uh, First month is free, so uh, give it a try. And if you have any ongoing questions or comments, you can always uh, ask them through that platform um, on the uh, comment page we have for each video. So look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for joining us.